0: Subscribe to The Spectator this Christmas and get the next 12 weeks of print and online access as well as a bottle of Paul Roger champagne, all for just £12. This offer is available in the UK only. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash Santa to subscribe. Hello and welcome to Marshall Matters with me, Winston Marshall at The Spectator in London. Today I'm joined by Sorab Amari. A founder and editor of Compact Magazine, contributing editor of The American Conservative, author of the books The New Philistines, a critique of how identity politics have corrupted the arts, From Fire by Water, about his conversion to Catholicism, and The Unbroken Thread, discovering the wisdom of tradition in an age of chaos. But crucially, Sohrab is or was the editor of The New York Post when the Biden laptop story broke which, of course, with the recent Twitter files exposed by Matt Taibbi and Barry Weiss, is back as a number one story in the world. So, Rob, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thanks for having me, Winston. So, I want to get into the Twitter files, but first of all, I want to ask you about the laptop story. So, you broke the laptop story before the presidential election in, I think, November 2020. It was in October 2020. But how did the laptop get from a Delaware computer service
1: shop into your hands. So I should start by noting I was the comment editor of the post at the time. Okay. So I was not involved in the reporting of the Hunter Files laptop story. In the US, there's this weird Chinese wall between news and opinion. So the opinion sits on one side, news on the other. So I was, of course, running our op-ed pages and so forth. But obviously we followed it like everyone else at the paper, I woke up at five in the morning on October 14th, the day that the first Hunter Files story appeared on our front page at the post. I encountered it alongside everyone else. I didn't know that my news colleagues were brewing this thing, as it were, the night before. And I thought it was a great scoop. We can go into what that story actually had uncovered. But what was remarkable about it, and this goes to your question, is how transparent the post was in terms of the sourcing of the material Over the preceding four years, there had been this mountain of typically anti-Trump stories, which the sourcing was based on anonymous sources. The dog catcher of the uncle of a senior administration official told so-and-so. This was not the case. The Post laid out how we had gotten hold of the sort of the provenance of this material. And briefly, Hunter Biden dropped off his laptop at a Delaware repair shop. Delaware happens to be the home state of the Bidens, if you drive through it you'll see a gas station that's called the Joseph R Biden gas station <laughs> and rest stop so that's how associated they are with Delaware he had dropped it off there forgotten it for more than 90 days and i guess under Delaware state law something called constructive ownership which means if you abandon something like that and you don't pay for your repairs the laptop repair shop takes ownership of the laptop the laptop owner looked into the stuff that was in there and noticed there was some questionable material, salacious material, and alerted the FBI. And they sequestered the laptop, but he made a private copy before turning it over to the authorities. And he happened to be a Republican. So, you know, through the networks, he knew eventually he got it into the hands of Rudy Giuliani's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, the former New York City mayor, of course, a friend of the Trump camp. Rudy then tells Steve Bannon, another Trump conciliary, and word gets out from Bannon to the Post. We learned that this laptop existed, and we petitioned Bannon to let us have a copy of the hard drive, and we did. And so we were... From the very beginning, from the very first story, the Post had been very transparent about how we got hold of this material. And we said that the sourcing was partisan, right? We said that we got this from the Trump camp, essentially. Mm -hmm. But again, that's a lot more credible than the kind of anonymously sourced stories which collapsed under subsequent factual scrutiny. This story did not collapse under factual scrutiny. It was partisanly sourced, but we were open. We trusted the intelligence of our readers to take that into account alongside the totality of the other material that was put forward in the story and make their own judgment about it. Mm-hmm. It was a longer answer to your question, but that's how we came upon the line. Will those other stories, for example, be Russian interference in the 2016 election? Is that another example? Or- oh, correct. There's so many of them. So, for example, there was a story in McClatchy, which is a newspaper chain in the United States, that said that Michael Cohen, then Trump's lawyer, had gone to Prague and met with you know, his FSB handlers or Russian handlers or something like that. Utterly debunked subsequently by these special counsel reports into so-called Russia collusion, the story about Trump suborning perjury from Michael Cohen. These all appeared in mainstream media outlets. The whole dossier put together by a Brit, as it happens, Christopher Steele, the Steele dossier about Moscow PP tapes, et cetera, et cetera, which subsequently got debunked. Those were all much more dubiously sourced than this one, and they all, as I said, those examples are ones stories that everyone now acknowledges were false or incorrect stories. That's not the case with the Post's Hunter Files reporting. So you get the
0: laptop. Are you aware in advance of what's on the laptop? Are you told by these people, Giuliani, Bannon, what's on there, or does the New York Post then go into the laptop and do their
1: own sort of exploring? So this is the part where the limits of my purview become relevant. As I said, I was the opinion editor, so I was running columns and so forth. And so I don't precisely know. My understanding is there was some hint given as to what was in there that was newsworthy and interesting, and then the post did its own subsequent reporting to look at that material and verify. So the first story, as you'll recall, involved an email showing or suggesting that Hunter had set up a meeting between executives from a Ukrainian energy firm called Burisma, which was then paying him $83,000 a month to serve on their board, even though, as far as I know, Hunter has no special expertise in Eastern European energy affairs or, or what have you, doesn't even speak Russian or Ukrainian, between executives from Burisma on one hand and his then vice president, father, who was the Obama administration's point man on Ukraine. Because that was in 2014. The meeting, I believe, was in 2015. 15, okay. And that was the basis of the first story. The interesting part in this is the Biden camp has never denied that aspect of the story. Hmm. In fact, they haven't denied any of it. The first thing you would do if someone says, hey, here's a laptop, here's an email we found, it suggests this and that, what do you do? You say, if it's not the case, you say... That was not my laptop. Yeah, They never did that through this entire affair because, then, I mean, it's very obvious. But on the other hand, mm. there's not a direct link
0: to Joe Biden. It just says 10% for the big guy. So there's not explicitly singling
1: out Joe Biden as complicit. So that was a subsequent story which appeared in the Post the following day, and it involved Hunter's Chinese dealings. Mm-hmm. Hunter had also been involved in business negotiations with a Communist Party-linked Firm as any important Chinese firm will become Communist Party-linked, and they were talking about allocation of profits. Mm-hmm. And there was an email that said 10% held for the big guy. Subsequently, Hunter's business partner in that affair, a guy named Bobolinsky, came forward, a lifelong Democrat, by the way, came forward, and a former naval intelligence officer came forward and said that 10% was understood to refer to Joe Biden. So that's a different—the 10% thing is China-related— Hunter was a busy man, as you can tell. The Ukrainian one is just unquestionable because there's a gap in Biden's schedule that day when this meeting was supposed to have taken place. And there are emails that suggest that the meetings took place because Burisma executives are thanking Hunter for setting it up.
0: And yet, actually, I should note that still now, Wikipedia says it's a conspiracy theory, a baseless conspiracy theory. But actually, it's not
1: baseless. This is the basis of it. I mean, it's outrageous that Wikipedia has that claim. I hadn't looked at that, which is why you shouldn't rely on Wikipedia for the most part, because it's randomly edited by anyone can go in and edit it. There's Mm -hmm. no authoritative dimension to it. The Hunter camp did not deny that this was Hunter's laptop. In Mm -hmm. fact, a few months later, he did an interview with one of the networks in the US. And he was asked, is this your laptop? He said, well, it certainly could be. Mm -hmm. And the Biden campaign never denied that then-Vice President Biden had had this meeting. So this is not baseless. And then more recently, the network, the U.S. networks have done their own verification of the independent verification of the hard drive Mm -hmm. and indeed verified that this was an authentic hard drive. Mm -hmm. So the idea that the material on there is, you know, fake is just, it does not withstand scrutiny. Well, the other
0: half of... The story within the laptop is all these pictures and videos of Hunter Biden with prostitutes, naked, sexually Mm lewd content, which I would suppose that had that come out could even have worked to Joe Biden's advantage because you'd say, "Well, I've got a son who's got addiction problems. They sort of ignore that. But the crucial part is those links between Joe Biden and
1: Ukrainian Burisma Company and the Chinese energy firm.
0: That's the key part.
1: And I would note that the Post could have published a lot more of the salacious material. Mm -hmm. A lot more, where Mm -hmm. that came from. And some of it subsequently came out in other outlets. At the Post, I think the philosophy was reveal just enough to authenticate or give credence Mm -hmm. to the meaty stuff about Ukraine and China, but don't make it about this man's personal struggles. So we, I think very judiciously, the Post didn't flood the internet with photos of Hunter, with... In some cases with, for example, prostitutes who looked very young. Mm -hmm. And I think there was some concern that they might be underage. Subsequently, I think they're not the case. I think he just has a preference for very young-looking women of legal age. But at any rate, we did not flood the Internet with that material. Others subsequently did. Just enough to say, hey, this comes from a tranche of material that's all connected. In other words, the, the email's couldn't have come from a source other than what we say they are because there's also this other material. Mm.
0: So then what happened? You ran the story. Mm. Talk me through the next days and what happened with Twitter.
1: So, yeah, this is the part I'm more familiar with because I was on the front end of it. (laughs) I looked up the story at 5 in the morning. I thought, wow, what a scoop. This is impressive. Good job to my colleagues who did this. Okay, a few hours go by. The story is gaining traction on Twitter and Facebook. Everyone's sharing it. And then, as I recall, at about 10 or 11 in the morning Eastern time, a Facebook communication staffer, Facebook, not Twitter yet, Facebook communication staffer named Andy Stone, who on his bio listed that before working for Facebook, he worked for the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, for Senator Barbara Boxer, a Democrat of California and other Democratic operations. He, Andy Stone, said I will deliberately not share the New York Post story, but I will just say, I'm slightly paraphrasing, that it raises serious fact-checking questions, and it qualifies for Facebook fact-checking, and in the meanwhile, we are reducing circulation on the story Hmm. on our platform. Now, again, like I said, over the previous four years, there had been a mountain of stories that collapsed under factual scrutiny, sometimes within a matter of 12 hours. Hmm. So, for example, BuzzFeed as I mentioned, ran a story that said Trump had suborned perjury from his lawyer, Michael Cohen. Suborning perjury means you tell someone, you order someone to go lie, in this case, to lie under oath in front of Congress. And within 12 hours, the former FBI director, Robert Mueller, his special counsel, who was then investigating so-called Russia collusion, put out a statement saying this story is not correct. This is false. Mm -hmm. And did Facebook reduce circulation on that story? No, no. Did Twitter ban that story? No. But in this case, Facebook reduced circulation. And then soon after Andy Stone's statement, again, remember Andy Stone works for Facebook, I noticed you couldn't post the story online. Mm -hmm. And people were trying to send it to me personally through direct messages saying, hey, look, you know, I can't post this. And they couldn't share the story in direct messages either. And I tried that and I noticed I couldn't share it. So not only was it banned from, you know, the public pages... You couldn't post it on your wall on Twitter, but you couldn't also share it in direct messages. And then Twitter outright suspended the Twitter account that with 8 million followers of the New York Post. It's worth noting the New York Post is America's oldest continuously published daily newspaper. Mm-hmm. It was founded by Alexander Hamilton, one of our founding fathers. And yet here it was being suspended for, they said, and we'll get into this, I know, in a little bit. They said this violates our hacked materials policy. Mm. At some point, they also said that it's a disclosure of material not authorized for release by someone else, by the subject of the story. Now, this was not hacked material. We insisted it was not hacked material. Mm -hmm. The provenance is what we said it was. And subsequently, of course, like I said, U.S. network news confirmed that this really came from a laptop. Mm -hmm. This is not hacked material. And the New York Post is not in the business of hacking. So that was the excuse And so the account was suspended for about two weeks. we also published, by the way, the following day, the following day being October 15, Mm -hmm. the story about the Chinese business dealing. That also was banned, I remember distinctly. Everyone focused on the banning of the first story. I always try to remember that they also banned the subsequent China story on Twitter. And a lot of blue-check media, mainstream media, the New York Post, again, is part of that ecosystem, but a lot of the others were telling us, you know, Just delete the story, you know, Mm -hmm. just delete your tweet so you get your account back. But the post didn't, because we insisted that this was not hacked material. What was going
0: on behind the scenes at the post? Was it outrage? Was it frustration? Did you in some way expect this might have happened? Were you surprised by what was happening?
1: I don't know what the wider newsroom thought. It was during the pandemic, we all were working from home. Mm -hmm. But I was definitely talking to people in the, you know, our our editor-in-chief, because I report to him as a comment editor, and the attitude was, we're going to fight this. You know, we, we stand by our story. It was confidence in our story, and we did, and luckily, I mean, over the course of those two weeks, the Post is, has enough resources to put our case forward. We went on TV. You know, I did Fox News hits. My colleague Miranda Devine, who's a columnist for us, did Fox News hits. Congressional hearings were quickly established, etc., cetera, and all that pressure ultimately led to Facebook relenting. For a while, by the way, it's worth noting, they said, okay, we've changed our rules. You can post hacked materials as long as you're not the party who hacked. Facebook or Twitter? Apologies, Twitter. Uh So you can post hacked materials as long as you're not the hacker. Now, we insist and continue to insist, and everyone knows now, that this was not hacked material to begin with. But they were saying, okay, we've changed our policy, but go back and delete your original tweet. You can tweet it again, but if you tweet it again, you will be no longer violating the original policy because the policy has been changed. But you have to go back and delete the original tweet. So they were offering us this. And this is where I'm really proud of my colleagues is that we did not do that. There was an anchor at CNN and Jake Tapper. He tweeted something. He said, why don't you just delete it? You can repost it. They've changed their policy. You can just post the exact same thing. But that would have been an admission of this story not being credible, not being what we said it was. So we didn't do that, and they, Twitter at some point just relented. I don't quite follow why, why it was so important for
0: them to have you delete the first one. And, and because
1: they it. would say that you violated our policy as it stood back then. Mm-hmm. We've changed the policy. Go delete the tweet that transgressed the original policy. Mm-hmm. But now that the policy's changed, if you tweet it again, it'll be in compliance. Mm-hmm. But it, again, this was not hacked material. I mean, there's so many dimensions to this story— I mentioned you know CNN and some other outlets one of the most shameful dimensions is the the refusal of other media outlets to come to our side in fact the vast majority of blue check media let's say mainstream reporters journalists all either cheer the censorship or turn the other way or try to condemn the post mm-hmm. rather than standing up for free speech NPR which is our equivalent of the BBC it's a taxpayer funded national public radio put out a statement saying, you know, we won't even touch the story because we don't deal with fake, mm-hmm. you know, non-story stories. Like I said, CNN's just said, why don't you relent? Why don't you back down? You know, one or two journalists who posted the story and said, hey, this might be interesting or something like that had to do these, uh, you know, Maoist-style self-criticism sessions. I'm so sorry for having posted that New York Post story, mm-hmm. etc. So at the time,
0: what did you think was happening? Do you think this was to change the course of the election?
1: I mean, I think at the time I tweeted something which got like 100,000 likes and (laughs) tens of thousands of retweets. And I said something like, this is a kind of tech totalitarianism, right? That in our century, totalitarianism doesn't look like, you know, a torturer in a darkened cell driving a screw under the nail of a dissident. But rather the fact that a Silicon Valley corporation can disappear from the internet, from vast swaths of the internet, a story that is damaging to the preferred presidential candidate Mm -hmm. of the establishment, Mm -hmm. the establishment being not just Silicon Valley, but Wall Street, Hollywood, the professional classes, this kind of the security apparatus, they all hated Trump, let's Mm -hmm. be honest. And I think the mentality in part was that somehow Trump had been illegitimately elected in 2016. And that social media platforms had played a role in his election and therefore this time around they weren't going to let a story like this mm-hmm. they, perhaps they were willing to go much further than they actually did they weren't going to let him get reelected and just to go back sorry to all the media who lined up on the side of censorship there was also a statement put out by 50 former intelligence officials heads of the CIA etc that said they had signed a letter 50 of them that said, although we don't have any evidence, this Hunter laptop story bears all the indicia or the hallmarks of a Russian disinformation operation. Mm -hmm. And of course, this was first reported by Natasha Bertrand of Politico. And it was reported like it was gospel. In other words, 50 intelligence officials say this, well, what was the relationship between the intelligence apparatus, and the media, let's say a decade ago, two decades ago, three, four decades ago, it's supposed to be an adversarial relationship, right? The intelligence agencies are the least accountable dimension of American power. These are people who can, you know, drone people out of the sky, you know, their, their budgets are all classified, you don't know what they do. So that's why, you know, journalists, some of the greatest journalists are journalists who have gone against these elements of American power and uncovered, wrongdoing, held them accountable, shed light into areas where unaccountable power would prefer darkness. That was the historic role of American journalism. So in this case, 50 intelligence officials say, this is Russian disinformation. What's the job of the journalist? Well, it's not to say, well, you're wrong, sir. That wouldn't be right either. But it's what? You ask questions. So, well, how do you know? What evidence do you have? Let me dig into it. That's not what they did. How long after you published the story did Did that letter come out? Easily within the first 48
0: hours. Because even though you cite Stone at Facebook, not mentioning Russian interference, when Zuckerberg went on Rogan, Zuckerberg said that the FBI came to him saying it was Russian interference. And so that's why Facebook took the story down.
1: Correct. I mean, this wouldn't be the FBI. This would be they were all retired officials, 50. Okay. The fact that these two elements of the story and there's so many others suggest this kind of cross-establishment effort, right? Corporations, blue-check media, corporate media, FBI, former intelligence officials all kind of working together. No, but the shameful thing is that when a former spook says, former top spook says, X, Y, Z, you're not supposed to say, oh, yes, sir, yes, sir, Mr. Brennan. Yes, it's X, Y, Z. You're supposed to ask questions, and none of them did. They reported the, uh, this this letter as gospel, which then helped further legitimate the censorship. Mm-hmm. Do you think it changed the course of the election? I mean, there are polls out there that suggest that X marginal share, it varies by state, but X marginal share of people who voted for Biden might have reconsidered their votes had they encountered this story, which Mm -hmm. they didn't. And just like here in Britain, an election turns on the outcome of marginal districts, right? Same in the United States, right? So we can't say for sure because the causality is so complicated, but undoubtedly some marginal share of voters and potentially a decisive margin Mm -hmm. might have voted differently had they encountered this material. Mm -hmm. So
0: So now... Since then, Elon Musk has bought Twitter, and over the last few days, we've had journalists Matt Taibbi and Barry Weiss revealing in the Twitter files what was happening behind the scenes. And the first tranche of information from the Twitter files from Taibbi was specifically about the suppression of the New York Post story.
1: How do you feel about them? I mean, it's a kind of uh, cold anger now. It's been two years But it's just confirmation of what we knew. The part that's very interesting, and it could frame our entire conversation that you and I are having right now, is over the hacked materials claim. Mm -hmm. The most interesting aspect of the first tranche, which was handed by Musk to Taibbi, was the internal deliberations of senior Twitter executives over the Hunter Biden story. And internally they all considered the hacked materials argument to be risible. They knew on the inside that it doesn't hold water. So you can read them internally saying, I don't think this will hold up. Mm -hmm. This is hours after they've called it hacked materials. And yet days and days went by, and Twitter did not relent initially on this hacked materials. They knew internally that this wasn't hacked material, Mm -hmm. that calling this hacked material makes no sense. And that is great vindication.
0: Is it because it, when you read it, it sort of seems like they're desperate, but they
1: don't have a better option than citing hacked material? Correct. Yeah. Right. Uh, I think someone told Taibbi, sorry, someone, one of them said, you know, we all knew it was wrong, but nobody had the guts to say no to this. Okay, so the Twitter files come out. And in some sense,
0: we knew it. You certainly, it seems like you knew what was, this was just a confirmation of what you already thought. Some people are saying that this is a nothing burger, quote, New for the Twitter files. Other people are saying that this is the biggest political scandal since Watergate. What's new about what we've learned from the Twitter files? And is it serious or is it a nothing
1: burger? I mean, I think it's extremely serious. And I I don't want to just focus on the outcome of the 2020 election, although mm-hmm. that's no small beer, right? Mm-hmm. The possibility that a story that was damaging to one of the two major party candidates was suppressed by a combination of big tech, mainstream media, the intelligence apparatus, former and current officials potentially. That's a huge story. I mean the deeper story, I think and the the one that makes it much more interesting for me is the picture that it gives us of privatized censorship and privatized repression and tyranny in the United States. That mm-hmm. is If you're an American, you're used to thinking of government and the public sphere as where repression happens and where we need checks and balances. Mm -hmm. That's a typical American mentality. I think it's an Anglo-American mentality. We are much less vigilant against and alert to the possibility of private coercion, Mm. whether it's outsourced by government or whether it's just private act, which I think in a way it's worse if it's just private actors acting on their own initiative. The idea that journalism can be repressed by essentially, as you saw, these unaccountable tech bros. Yeah, But it's chilling. It is
0: outsourced by government, in my opinion, with section 230C, which, and I'll read it here, the Good Samaritan provision, which protects platforms from liability for, quote, any action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access to or availability of material that the provider or user considers to be obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable, whether or not such material is constitutionally protected. So it is outsourced by the government, indeed, for big tech and the like to
1: censor. Well, it's worth getting into that law. We need Section 230 reform. And I've been going on Fox the past few days a couple of times. You know, people are saying, much like you, people are like, well, two years later, all this has come out. You know, where do you stand on it now? And what I always say is it's not enough to say, well, thank God for Elon Musk for shedding light on this because ultimately we shouldn't be at the mercy of one billionaire, however Mm. pro-free speech he might be, because this is a structural problem. Mm -hmm. And one of the structural public policy elements in this, is precisely that piece of legislation you read, Section 230. It's worth asking, Section 230 of what? Mm. It's Section 230 of a 1996 law called the Communications Decency Act. Mm -hmm. So it was enacted in 1996 before Twitter had been invented. This Mm -hmm. is before the age of social media. It governed online bulletin boards, Mm -hmm. right? And on a bulletin board, you provide the platform, and then different people can come in Mm -hmm. and... Say Have their say
0: mm-hmm.
1: now, if section two thirty didn't exist, I could come in and post something libelous i'd defame you on and not only would you be able to sue me for defaming you, but you could sue the bulletin board, mm-hmm. which provided the platform, right it's a publisher in a way mm-hmm. just like an, if the spectator publishes libelous material, not only is the author of the piece liable for that. But the spectator itself can be sued under common law, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: defamation, or libel laws. Section 230 came in, in the early days of the internet, with the idea being that we want bulletin boards to exist and people to be able to have their say. But we want the providers of the platform to be able to take action against child pornography, against violent threats. Notice the kind of material that you let off. It's like lascivious you know, yeah. lewd, obscene, et cetera, et cetera. We want them to be able to act like that, act like a publisher, so they choose which things can go and which things cannot go online without being subject to a traditional publisher's liability. So mm-hmm. then in the decade that followed, Twitter emerged, Facebook emerged, and they, they were governed by the Communications Decency Act in the sense that they were allowed and even encouraged to interdict genuinely bad material, right? We don't want child porn. Mm-hmm without bearing any of the traditional publishers liabilities that law has been completely perverted and abused by big tech mm-hmm. and yet they insist on maintaining the current regime how has it been perverted if you go on twitter you can find immediately the most extreme pornography easily mm-hmm. it's everywhere and sometimes you accidentally may come upon it or they don't act on it but they use it to act like a publisher for example by censoring the hunter files story mm-hmm. And they are allowed to do that under Section Two Thirty, and they spend millions of dollars every year. Big tech does lobbying Washington to maintain mm. the current regime, mm. which allows them to act like. If you go on like Facebook, Facebook almost has its own worldview. It encourages you to support certain political causes. It it can certainly decirculate certain stories as they did with the Hunter files, and yet. It's not treated the way the spectator is. It's mm-hmm. not treated the way the New York Post is. It has the special status. And I think that needs to change. I think there has to be a reform. If they want to act like publishers, then they should bear a traditional publisher's liabilities, meaning Section 230 has to be drastically rewritten or abrogated or, at any rate, deeply
0: reformed. Do you think reform to mirror there's the same standards for other newspapers, etc.,
1: other media outlets? to match the requirements they have. I mean there would be enormous pressure on them to they would probably seek to have to censor more, right? Because any anything that appears on their platforms could potentially lead to liability for them, which right? wouldn't be very practical. Which wouldn't be very practical. Yeah. But the threat of that, right, should be used to get them to agree to what I call well not what I call it would is called under US law common carrier rules. Uh. Right? Common carrier rules are what govern your relationship with your like, landline phone company or, your, or the train that you take or your airplane. For the most part, these can't discriminate against you based on your political views, mm-hmm. right? Because we recognize them as this kind of common good. People need to be able to make calls. People need to be able to get on trains, et cetera. And so they basically have to let anyone use their services. And I think, you know, something like that is a common carrier. And then, of course, you know, a common carrier still has the right to interdict like genuinely dangerous material and so forth, mm-hmm. porn, child porn, etc., but not political content.
0: Mm-hmm. So as a conservative writer, uh-huh. were you surprised at all to see through the Twitter files how it was conservative voices that were silenced and that progressive voices on the other side didn't face the same sort of treatment? Not at all.
1: It's worth noting, there are some lefties who aren't like Democrat lefties, right, get censored as well. Or leftists who oppose lockdown regimes and so forth, Mm -hmm. for left wing reasons, have also faced this kind of thing. But it's absolutely true that overwhelmingly, it's like populist conservative types who face the sharp end of this kind of censorship. And so I'm not surprised at all, because I think I'm fairly confident I experienced it. So you know I had at some point I hit like one hundred and thirty thousand followers on Twitter mm-hmm. and for about a year after January six, it would not go up. I would have tweets that would go viral, mm-hmm. I would get lots of new followers, but somehow I would stay. so whether or not that means my account was being throttled mm-hmm. or lots of my right of center followers were being banned or shadow banned or at any rate suspended from the platform, and you saw it, and I knew tons and tons of people who were either themselves banned or could tell you that they've been throttled in a way that's not natural. Their follower count wasn't rising.
0: So shadow banning, this is what Barry Weiss has just revealed in the second tranche was that Correct. shadow banning was very much happening and it's not called shadow banning, it's called visibility, well I've forgotten the exact...
1: Visibility reduction or whatever. So, something yeah. <laughs> like that.
0: Uh, some euphemism uh, yeah. which is exactly the same thing. So, but we sort of knew that that was happening. We saw we? it, yeah, yeah. We
1: all experienced it. We all it.
0: experienced it. Yeah. So it's no surprise really that now we've been proved right yes is there any vindication for you or is again we already knew this is an is this a
1: non-story it's it's nice to see the internal deliberations Mm -hmm. and this mechanism they use i mean there's like a what barry revealed is sort of the console that you see if you're a a manager at twitter and you can pull up an account Mm -hmm. and you can apply various restrictions on it that restrict its ability to proliferate or gain followers. Mm -hmm. And so to see it to be that as straightforward as that, that someone can click something Mm. and your account doesn't grow in followers or a certain tweet becomes more hidden and more difficult to find and therefore doesn't go viral, to see how simple it all is is pretty pretty remarkable. Mm. And also, I mean, this raises a kind of a, a legal question for current or former executives at Twitter is that they testified under oath that this wasn't happening Mm. before Congress. And so this raises questions of, did they perjure themselves? What sort of uh, accountability can Congress pursue for for being lied to by Twitter executives who said that there isn't partisan shadow banning or what have you?
0: Mm. All of this gives the impression that, I mean, again, we sort of already knew this, but there's a real free speech problem in America. And given that the First Amendment and the Bill of Rights, it's so... Foundational to American philosophy and everything that's great important about America and was founded on, do you agree with that that there's a free speech problem, and how deep a problem is it
1: if so i mean look it 's obscene, quite literally obscene, that you can have the vilest pornography on Twitter but questioning lockdowns, as Dr. J. Batarchaya did. Mm one of the founding signatories of the Great Barrington Declaration. Stanford physician. I've met him. Just an eminently sane, sober, deeply educated, thoughtful guy Mm -hmm. who early on said, hey, lockdowns may not be worth it. They may damage children's future. And his account was one of the ones that we saw through the Barry Weiss Mm branch was one of the ones that had been throttled by Twitter executives. So his voice doesn't get heard,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but you can get any, any amount of pornography, which was not part of the original conception of free speech in the United States, right? In other words, for most of its history, the United States had obscenity laws. And even before there was a United States, colonial America had obscenity laws, common law obscenity laws, and then subsequently a federal obscenity law. And those are still on the books. Mm-hmm. Yet they're not enforced. For decades and decades, centuries, no one thought that that was protected speech, That's fine. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: But questioning lockdowns Mm -hmm. gets you throttled by a privatized censorship apparatus. Mm -hmm. That's a huge crisis. Of course it's a huge crisis. It's a crisis in two ways. The one I think that's in a way less dangerous is the one where, okay, speech is getting throttled, ordinary people don't get to be heard. That's really huge, by the way. That's Mm -hmm. a bad thing. Mm -hmm. But the more dangerous type of consequence from this it's one where you know Malcolm Cune recently argued this point in Compact, our magazine. It's that elites themselves are barred from accessing the full range of information that they need to make decisions. Right? Twitter is where elite consensus forms. It's where journalists, government, etc., go to see what they're all thinking to communicate with each other in a way. And if they're creating a kind of bubble where dissident views aren't coming in, they make bad decisions, as indeed they did with lockdowns. Instead of listening to Jay Bhattar Chaya, they banned him. Well, but that's not elites doing that, because the elites still have access to that information if they wanted it. It's that the general public don't have access to that information. Well, no, I mean, I think there is a kind of elite consensus formation that happens on Twitter, where they're told what they're allowed to think, what's considered, you know, an opinion that just shouldn't be heard at all. Mm. Elites are just as much susceptible to kind of cultural pressure as ordinary people. And cultural pressure is often undergirded by and stands on sort of normative rules, right? The norms and rules that are imposed on a certain platform Mm -hmm. help shape the kind of cultural vermin. So socially acceptable thought.
0: Sure, but then who are the elites in this
1: hypothesis? It's the American ruling class. It's large owners of capital, the professionals who service their assets. It's the national security apparatus. It's the media for sure, mm-hmm. tech, Hollywood. Now, there are individuals who go against the grain in this case, like someone like Elon Musk. Mm-hmm. And, you know, thank God for that. But there is, you know, there is a kind of consensus that's -hmm. that's formed. And it used to be, honestly, it used to happen in traditional media, right? There used to be, you know, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Network News. And that's where this kind of... uh, So we shouldn't have illusions that there was like an earlier age in which this kind of process didn't happen. Mm
0: -hmm. Interestingly enough, in Democracy in America by de Tocqueville, he does describe how some ideas are totally acceptable to discuss. And then at a certain point, they become unacceptable to discuss when a consensus is formed. And so discussion on those topics becomes impossible. So this is actually a very old, ancient human phenomenon.
1: Sure, sure. I think what's chilling or new about it in a democracy is that the norm setting, including norm setting for elites themselves, is done by unaccountable private entities in other words it's not subject to democratic give and take it's not subject to community pressure mm. but rather is done in corporate boardrooms or in managerial settings yeah. of lawyers sitting down with you know tech executives etc and Who are all in their own little bubbles their own little group thing correct yeah that's the sort of new dimension of this which is a little bit, it's different than you know i think the small puritan town you know Mm-hmm. <laughs> that in in New England that, you know, Tocqueville might have uh, yeah. encountered. Yeah. So
0: aside from, let's say, Elon Musk changing Twitter and hopeful turning around of, of Section, is it 501c? Section 230. What's a hopeful way out of this? Like, what's a positive way out of this mess? Or rather, mm. are you hopeful that we can get out of this mess?
1: Yes. So the situation that we're entering is not entirely different than the conditions economic conditions, political economic conditions that prevailed in the United States in the 19th century up through the Great Depression, and not much different, arguably, across much of the wider West as well. Mm-hmm. Vast concentrations of private power where they are not this power is not countervailed from below. And then with the rise of social democracy as a political force and Christian democracy in Europe, and in a slightly muted form with the New Deal in the United States. We realized that in many markets, there are only so many actors, there are only a few actors, which means that the old kind of free market recipe for fixing these markets, coercion in these markets, doesn't work, right? In pure laissez-faire theory, which is largely based in a pre-industrial context, it's the models are drawn from a pre-industrial context, the sheer existence of many many actors many many buyers many many sellers in any market means that no what not one of them can have too much coercive power but post industrial age when you have network industries or where you have industries of great scale there really are only just a few players in any market right so in the social forget about social media with you know car manufacturers there are only so many for the most part you can't start a mom and pop <laughs> Car manufacturer, as, as my friend Michael <laughs> Michael Lin points out, or turn to social media. There's only how many are there?
0: Yeah, yeah. There's
1: two or three. Mm. So that means that those two or three can exercise enormous power. They get to set the price. They get to tell their customers, you know, what's acceptable and what's not. They get to you know, censor information in the case of social media and be largely unaccountable. Mm. So. What was the solution to this problem that emerged roughly from 1945 to the 1970s in the United States and in Europe as well was a model based on the raising up of the countervailing power of the people who are subject to this kind of coercion. Mm -hmm. So in labor markets, that meant trades unions. In other areas, it may have meant some antitrust action. In other areas, it meant government coordinating with capital and labor to set conditions, prices, wages, etc., so it was a much more heavily regulated, heavily unionized form.
0: But so Rap, in the, let's say, social media use, yeah. firstly, you've had, let's say, one half, the conservative half, so to speak, or the anti-establishment half, if you will, constantly standing up saying that there's been a suppression of voices, there's been shadow banning, all this stuff which we now know is true. And then the other half seem to support the censorship. Mm-hmm. So where is this yeah. supposed great- fight back going to come
1: from? Great question. Conservatives who are subject to this, who are basically facing the business end of this kind of private coercion, are in many ways the ones who brought about the current order, right? It was the kind of Reagan-Thatcher revolution that undid, I think, and it's a common story, so I'm not the only one arguing, that undid the sort of settlement that prevailed from 1945 through the 70s. They said, "No, no, no! If we liberate big business, we'll have a kind of a flowering of an economic flowering, and also a kind of a freer society." Blind as they were, I would argue to the possibility of private coercion, and so now that they're subject to it, I think conservatives are in a position to recover the wisdom of that earlier settlement. Which, in the United States, keep in mind, it wasn't just the Democrats who pushed for the sort of New Deal consensus; it was also Eisenhower and Nixon did as well, Republicans. Mm. They recognized that something had happened to the economy in the 19th century and up through the Depression that necessitated a solution in which more people get a say in, in the management of the economy. And then that wisdom was thrown out the window. The best way to confront woke, censorious capital is to reduce the power of capital as such. And then so, you know, for example, you're worried about censorship of conservative views, the best way is to just stand against the large concentrations of power that enable that kind of abuse. Are you worried about Disney or Google or whatever telling its employees and consumers to think this way and that? Reducing the sort of aggregate power these entities have over their suppliers, consumers, workers, etc. is the best way. It's a way not to make this about a kind of culture war. It's a kind of material way Reduce the power of the large in general or raise up the power of the weak to some degree and restore a measure of balance and then people can fight back much more easily rather than saying, well, we're going to, you know, we're going to go after companies if they say X, Y, Z to their employees because then the left can say and we're also going to ask that companies do this and that. And it all becomes a kind of cultural level battle rather than saying, hey, Silicon Valley has gotten too strong. Mm. Roll back its power government regulation labor etc so i can sort of follow that what
0: that means in commercial enterprises let's say you could boycott a company or whatever but i don't quite follow how how you can do that with big tech because people don't want to boycott they want to
1: have their voice heard so how would it work with big tech i mean with big tech i think imposing common carrier requirements on them they have to be thought of as just like your phone company right your phone company doesn't yet i hope your phone company can't censor you mm-hmm. or refuse you service. Usually a train company can't refuse to let you board based on your political views. I think that's the kind of mentality that should be the regulatory framework for dealing with big tech. Okay, And then they would hate it. They would hate it. But it's a kind of more material solution than than I think we're saying, well, what Republicans are pursuing now, which is to what? What are they going to do right now? Okay, you saw the stuff that Musk published. You're going to be a little bit outraged about it. What are you really going to do? Mm. And this is something you're exploring in your new book, I understand. The whole book is about sort of the importance of raising up countervailing power. This is a concept that emerged in the 20th century, right, where you notice in markets where there's only two or three sellers or two or three buyers yeah. relative to many, many other kind of… Duopolies. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and exactly. And, and oligopolies. I mean, that kind of a situation… Naturally, the people who are subject to the original power of those powerful entities will kind of band together, whether it's in labor Mm -hmm. unions, trade associations, this Mm -hmm. and that, to protect themselves. Mm -hmm. But in some markets, government has to assist in that. So it takes a little bit of political pressure and protection for, for example, trade unionism Mm. to succeed. And that model was very helpful for the, over that course of those thirty years. we had a very prosperous economy, mm. an innovative economy, yep. a prosperous economy, but it just happened to be a little bit fairer, and the social distribution of income was also less lopsided so, uh, so is th- this is a kind of a new antitrust or a new breaking up of the monopolies into a place well, so not quite because here's why, for example, on Facebook and many other cases, antitrust I think doesn't necessarily work because if you break them up, how are you going to break them up? People with their last names from like, you know, A to L would be in one network, and the other ones, M to Z, would be another worker. Well, everyone wants to connect with everyone. Yeah. So, in a way, it's more rational for the big, but the big has to be subject to the countervailing power of the people subject to Twitter, Facebook, mm-hmm. et cetera, yeah. power. So, I think it just means government restraining the ability for censorship but bigness itself isn't necessarily bad mm-hmm. right again in, in the case of railroads many car manufacturers etc cetera, etc cetera, you actually you want you want large large is rational in many ways as long as again other actors are empowered to defend their interests to a sufficient degree against these mm-hmm. giants and when can we expect the book august 2023
0: well i look forward to it thanks. So, Rabbi Mari, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today
1: thanks winston